Tim Larkin is the founder and creator of Target Focused Training. Every time I teach people to do something, the goal of it is either to shut down a system of the human body, a sensory system of the human body, or to break structure in order to save your life. Larkin teaches his students to recognize when they can avoid violence and when to use it in facing imminent life-threatening danger. I'm just about to hit him. And that's when I see this idiot had his kid in his car. She's pressed up against the back windshield crying, saying, please don't hurt daddy. Target Focus Training has instructed over 10,000 clients in more than 40 countries. You have to ask yourself, the event that you're about to use violence in, that you're going to respond with violence. Three days from now, if you find yourself dead, now your family has to deal with you being dead or you find yourself sitting in a jail cell are you going to tell yourself you were devoid of choice you had no other options you know in this situation is it going to matter to you in three days in 2013 rodeo books published larkin's book survive the unthinkable a total guide to women's self-protection tony robbins wrote the foreword for the book. The book debuted at number four on the New York Times bestseller list as well as the USA Today bestseller list. She wakes up and this guy's on top of her. Yeah, 230 pound guy on top of her. And she said, the first thing that I realized is it was like you were in my ear saying, oh, he's not close enough. Before we begin today's episode, I would really appreciate a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening to this on. This helps to get the message out there to men and therefore encourage and inspire them to level up their life. So without further ado, this is the Modern Warrior Podcast. I am your host, Gavin Meenan. Thank you for tuning in. Tim, an absolute honor to have you here, my man. Uh, Thank you for taking the time to do this interview with me. I know it's going to be absolutely incredible and full of knowledge, wisdom bombs for people to ultimately kick ass in life and uh, protect themselves and uh, build their confidence when it comes to extreme situations. I uh, have been watching some of your content and you have this motto that you tend to open up with. I've seen it floating around a few times. I think you open up your TED talk with this motto or the slogan that violence is not the answer, but when it is, it's the only answer. And yep. it got me thinking, is that motto coming from a place of personal experience or is that coming from the experiences of others? Where where was that born? Uh, I think it's just, yeah, yeah it's probably, I, I probably started using that about 20 years ago. Um, and that's after, after, you know, I'm a military kid originally. And, uh, so I've been around the military my whole life. Special operations community is, is where I'm from. Um, and so I saw the application of violence on, in professional settings. Um, my uncles growing up, uh, you know, the, I think my grandfather, I think the first gifts I remember my grandfather giving me were boxing gloves and, you know, learning how to use it. But there was always a place violence always had a place in society and so the the actual quote is violence is rarely the answer Mm -hmm. and everybody likes that part of the quote because um you know we all know that inherently we know you know responding with violence in most situations is absolutely wrong the second part is the part that that causes people to pause 
and wonder, you know, what am I talking about? And that is when it is the answer, it is the only answer. And to me, that's the interesting part of the equation. And that's what I try to take sane, socialized people and actually walk them through that. When would violence actually be the answer? What are the thresholds? Um, you know, what mistakes are you making? You know, where you think you need to respond with violence when actually it's the worst time to respond with violence. And to me, that's always been the interesting aspect of, you know, the evolution of how I've trained in all this information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because the more I look into this and I've also had some experience with this too. I do come from a martial arts background. I have had friends who've been caught up in quite extreme situations where they were even jailed for um violent based activities and and I've been involved too. So where when is it a time to to stand and fight or when is it the time to just run away? Well, let me put everything in pro in preference. Since, since since you guys are from my, you know, you're I'm talking to my my original ancestral home uh people. Just realize I, I come from a, a very strong Irish background. Um my grandfather, I remember he was, he was one of the Irish, the, the, the big joke in Boston was if an Irishman walks by and sees a fight, he'll tap one of the guys on the shoulder and say, is this a private affair or can anybody join in? So I, I was raised in a way that uh, I was very comfortable fighting. You know, fighting was a resolution to things as a schoolboy and stuff like that. Not violence, though. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about fighting. Violence is a very different avenue. Um so today, especially in my country, um, it's really frowned upon for uh, kids to health, you know, have a healthy outlet for violence, like combat sports. There, there are combat sort practitioners, but in the schools themselves, um, you know, I, I, I went to an Irish Catholic, uh, um, all boys Catholic school, and we would regularly, if we had an issue, they'd throw us in the boxing ring and let us hash it out. And it was a very healthy outlet. So there are healthy outlets for that type of uh, aggression. I call that antisocial aggression. That's not a threat level. Violence is a very different animal. Violence is when you're devoid of choice. Uh, violence is, the way I define it, is if you could, could have talked your way out of the situation, you would have. If you could have uh, run away, you would have. And now you're facing imminent grievous bodily harm from my assumption whenever I train anybody is you're going to face multiple attackers. Those attackers are going to be bigger, faster, and stronger, and they're going to carry weapons. So it's a very high threshold. And people ask, well, how, you know, is there a clearer way of defining that? And probably the clearest way I, I've had is, and I know it's going to be different uh, for you guys to hear this. You know, we have more of a firearms culture, obviously, here. But what I always tell people is if the threat that you're facing, is to the effect where you're devoid of choice. And if you had access to a firearm, you would feel completely justified emptying that firearm into the threat or threats. That is when you respond with violence. And so it's a very, very high threshold. Very few things meet that. But when you have clarity, um, it, it's the behavioral change that takes place in people when they understand the difference between aggressions, antisocial aggression, unpleasant exchanges with people, versus true violence once they have that clear def definition and they understand how to use the tool of violence it's amazing the changes they make in their lives that's the big thing that i noticed you know i started out in the military and law enforcement community and special contractor community um prior to 9 11 and uh 
in that world, it was all operational. I was doing when I got in the civilian world, that's where I had to talk more, you know, like this, I, I, I never planned to train civilians, but it just kind of went that way. And I found civilians, uh, it's really pleasurable to train them because oftentimes because we're not used to, you know, I, I, I grew up in a situation where, you know, I'm, I'm older, I'm in my fifties now. And as a young kid, you could mouth off, you could, you could, you could do that, but you had to back it up. Meaning we were a lot more polite because we realized there were repercussions, you know, growing up. And now in school, there's, there's not, there's all this, you know, crazy stuff. And oftentimes that, that goes now into your early adulthood and people make the mistake of using aggression because they've never had to pay the price physically for that. And then they get absolutely shocked when somebody responds with physical violence and um to me educating people along those lines is 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 really key and and people take a lot of unnecessary risks with their lives um responding to things that they really don't have to respond to and and so it's a juxtaposition because if you come to me for training and, and my client base unfortunately 70 percent of my client base comes to me after the fact in fact, if your people don't know anything about me, that's probably good. Probably means violence has, hasn't entered your life. People usually find me, the majority of them find me after. Doing podcasts like this, doing the talks that I get to do, um, speaking events, all that, it's great because I get to reach that 30% of the people that come to me before violence um, you know, comes in. Um, you, violence can absolutely, it's one of those events in your life that in seconds, can turn your whole life upside down. And people, if they're not familiar with the potentiality for violence and the ramifications of it, they, uh, they make bad decisions. You know, oftentimes I see people um, respond to things, say like a road rage type of an incident or an unpleasant encounter in a, in a pub or a, uh, a club or something like that. And they think they're dealing with their social circle. They think they're dealing with people that will respond in kind, you know, because in my social circles, I can literally call this guy some of the worst things ever, and there's going to be no repercussions. Bring it back. Whereas I'm out at this club, I see a guy doesn't look like anything, you know, same thing. Actually, he's smaller than me. And I respond to him. I have no idea. He just is freshly out of prison. And he takes exactly what I say at my word. And all of a sudden, I'm dealing with a situation that I had no idea how to handle and, and what to do. And, and it has horrible results. So that's a very extreme situation. But I guess my message is I show people exactly how to shut down the human body to save their own lives. And, and uh, you know, I'm very, I guess you'd call it extreme in some ways, meaning every time I teach people uh, to do something, the goal of it is either to shut down a system of the human body, a sensory system of the human body, or to break structure in order to save your life. When you think, take things to that, that threshold and you realize how, how few things would, would be necessary for that, the behavioral change in you is huge because you don't want that to come into your life. You know, um, and, and what's really interesting is you, you actually end up, by understanding the tool of violence, you end up living a much more peaceful life and, and you're much calmer um, because you understand the ramifications of it. And so the education portion of it to me is always challenging and the most rewarding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have a, 
a lot more confidence in your life because you know you can ultimately save your life with the tools that you have there's there's that it's, it's a different thing though it's not um you know if you come to me i'm not going to turn you into a super ninja you're going to be able to get into you know one of the combat sport you know you're gonna jump in the ring with a top-notch combat sport personnel violence is a very different tool um violence is the equivalent of uh you know uh well i'll give a perfect example in i have a, a video that i show in my class and it's in an australian prison and there was an Australian kickboxer, champion kickboxer, who was uh, arrested for distribution of, uh, of uh, ecstasy, huge ecstasy ring that he was running out of Southeast Asia. He was in there. So he gets arrested. He goes in. So he decides that the first day in prison, he goes in the prison yard, picks out a couple of people, and beats the crap out of them. Just sits there to set the tone. And, you know, very competent guy and, and you know, did that. Two days later, he's sitting in the, the common area of the prison. You know, all the, all the cells are around. They're like tables. They look almost like picnic tables, you know, that are, that are sitting there. A guy is engaging him, talking to him. And you see down the stairs, a guy quietly running down the stairs. And he has, it looks like a pillowcase. Or it is a pillowcase, but something's in the pillowcase. As this guy's being distracted, this guy takes the pillowcase and brains him on the back of the head. Um, you know, you, you know, causing huge concussion. He goes to the ground again, and then he hits him again with it. He had a, he worked in the kitchen, and he had a little panini uh, grill that he grabbed from the kitchen, put it into uh, the the pillowcase, had his friend distract him, and took him out. Why? One of the guys that was taken out the day before was one of his friends. So what did this guy learn? This guy learned, oh, okay. He's he's a very competent combat sport practitioner. I'm not going to challenge him that way. I'm going to distract him and I'm going to sit there and I'm going to strike him when he has no idea it's coming and take him out. And yet, if you put both of those guys in the ring, the combat sport practitioner would take him out. You know, no, no questions asked. But this guy didn't play that game. He used the tool of violence. He figured out, I'm going to take something harder than me. I'm going to put it in this um, this, the sack, I'm going to be able to accelerate it way faster than I can accelerate my body tools. And I'm going to open up his skull and take him out. And then I don't have to worry about how great he is at fighting. So it, violence is a tool that often, you know, the reality of it is disappointing and inconvenient for people because people want to think, especially in the combat sport world, they think somehow, um, all the training they have is going to make them immune to violence in some ways, or somehow, you know, uh, superimposed. And, and listen, I'm a huge, I live in Las Vegas, Nevada. We, we, we have the headquarters of the UFC. I have tons of friends in the UFC. I love combat sports. And some of my best friends are practitioners. You know, my competition days are way over, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm way beyond that. Um, so it, it's not denigrating combat sports. It's just, it's a very different app. Violence is a very different application. And violence is available to anybody. And uh, it is not limited to your physical abilities, per se. Um, but you can be very ingenious in how you use the tool and very deceptive in how you use the tool. And we just have to worry. All the training I have, I'm a, by far, I'm a master close combat instructor. I've instructed just about every military unit you can think of, a lot in the UK, um, uh, a lot of special units that, that, that are trained, all that stuff. I'm, and and I, I've earned those credentials. If I walk out the door of my building here right now and I catch a pipe to the back of the head, 
I go down just like everybody else. Violence, be, my, my training gives me no immunity to violence. Um, the tool is only good for me if I'm the one using it, you know, against the other person. And so I'm, but, but my body is just as susceptible to any of these, uh, areas. The only, the only incidence is with somebody like me or, or people that are well-trained, you better get it right the first time. Don't give us a chance to recover because we're going to, we're going to get right back into it right away. Um, so you know, I, I hope that kind of answers your question. I'm sorry if I'm going off on a tangent. No, no, no. I just wanted to like lay yeah. that out. <clears throat> that's clearly defined uh, violence for me. And yeah. uh, thank you for that example, because that's, yeah, that I've got the clarification now for sure. I think some other people would be quite confused about that. Um, yeah, there's nothing noble about it. You know, violence is not, they're, they're, the, 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 using the tool of violence, it, it's, it's for survival. Yes. And and it's Life not, you know, it takes away all the fantasy of uh, of it being some sort of a, you know, a, 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 a white knight yeah. thing or something, yeah, yeah. you know. Have you found yourself in that situation? Life or death? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've had to use a tool. Uh, probably I, I would consider it the level I'm talking about. I would say probably three times in the last 20 years I've had to, I've had to do it in my business. But, you know, I travel the world. I, I go to some dangerous places. Uh um, I train, you know, groups that are engaged in conflicts. Um, so I have a little bit more of an unusual um, travel Weird. pattern than most people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you know, I, uh, I look at two of those situations and I realize I didn't, I didn't assess the situation, you know, well. I, I put myself in a, a situation because the real goal for me is to create a situation where you have so many rings around you that it's very hard for violence to enter your life. Um, I had made assumptions that I was in a safer place than I was. I had made assumptions that uh, uh, the personnel that I was surrounded with uh, were, were all on the same side. Um, you know, yeah, it turned out okay for me. Uh, but again, I reassessed how I operated after that each and every time because i realized you know the last thing you want to do is, is is use the tool if you don't have to uh it's, it's like flipping a coin every time um because the, the threshold has to be there you know and you don't want to be in a situation that you could have avoided and and so so you know that's the idea behind it, it, it the old you know if, if you had talked to me in my late 20s, early 30s, when I was at the height of my training in military and law enforcement, I was a lot more aggressive. Um, I was a lot more proactive. Um, and I was a lot less in the civilian world at that time. Um, you know, the wisdom that I have doing this for as long as I've done and, and, and you know, all the stories that I know and all the, all the data that I have has, has helped me refine the way I look at the tool and, um, and, and how I teach it. So, uh, you know, the way I teach people now is the way I wish I had learned it, um, because it's just a much better application and gives you much more clarity on when you'd ever, you know, need to need to use the information. I know that the people listening to this podcast, when you tell us that you were in three of those quite extreme experiences in your life are, are, uh, curious about the situation and how you got out of it and what happened there. Can you give us some information on it? Yeah. The, um, one was when I was going to school in the UK. Uh, I was uh, coming out of the tube station and I felt somebody on my on, on my back pocket. And I came around and 
I, I grabbed the wrist that I saw and I saw the guy was going for a knife. I saw that he actually, you know, was going for the knife. I continued in because of the, the wrist that I had, I had the leverage that I needed. I continued through, I was able to break it, break the wrist, drop them to the ground. And, uh, then the security that was there at the time came and then the police came and, and we were able to take him away. But this guy was very intent on stabbing me. I guess he had, you know, he had a pretty good record for that. Um, what was interesting about that was I was so used to, because we trained so much with tools, knives, guns, and all that other stuff. For me, it was, just, it was not a profile that surprised me. It was, uh, that's when I learned that the, that the way I had been trained uh, by my instructor had prepared me very well for those situations. I didn't get distracted or worried about that. I understood, you know, the, I understood the profile this guy was in. I continued on with the advantage that I had. And that was my first time where it was, it was actually kind of disappointing um, because it was actually fairly easy. Um, the other two times where I was working in Venezuela, uh, pre-Chavez in the in late 90s, we did a lot of work in Venezuela. We were doing a lot of counter-narcotics work and just had a couple of situations where there were some cartel, there's some cartel activity, uh, there's, uh, you know, firefights exchanged. Um, and, you know, I, I was able to, I was able to act in that situation. Um, both of those situations, the tube situation, I could have avoided. And that's why I was mad. I was just, I was just being dumb the way I was. I was, I was, I got off. I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't drunk or anything, but I, I was with my friends and I, I saw, you know, there were some sketchy people there and I just chose to ignore it. And, um, you know, I, I probably could have avoided him picking me. Um, I think he thought he was going to be able to come by and I was distracted enough talking to people that he was going to be able to just nick my wallet and uh, go. Um, now, if he had just been trying to get my wallet, I would have, I probably would have just let him go at that point. As soon as I saw him going for the knife, that's when I realized it was way more serious. And I was very lucky to see that because a lot of times, um, especially with knife crime, you don't see the knife. You just, you, you think you've been punched or something and then you find out you've been stabbed. So I was extremely lucky. That's what I was beating myself up about was the fact that I, I wasn't, I was letting myself in a social situation, get way distracted, even though, even though my training and I had, I had this visceral nonverbal warnings in my body saying, Hey, you should pay more attention here. You know, that's something that I always counsel people about this idea that, um, be okay to be socially awkward. You know, we have our, we've evolved as humans um, from uh, from ancestors that were very good using the tool of violence. And there's a lot of things that we have in our DNA that you know have nonverbal warnings or things that we don't understand. Um, and oftentimes, what happens is you won't take action, and this happens with a lot of women. You won't take action because you'll feel socially awkward or you'll feel like you're judging somebody or you'll feel like you're being, um, you, you know, uh, racist or something like that. Uh, whereas your body's just starting to say, hey, there's something wrong here. There, there, you know, there, there's something wrong because this is normally what happens when people come to me and they've had violence happen. Normally what happens is I knew something was wrong here and here is where I could have exited, gone over, but I didn't want to because either social awkwardness time constraints, um, convinced myself it was no big deal. I ignored those warnings. Then I get to here and then it's too late. It's already happened. Now I have, now the only thing I have left is the tool of violence. And if you don't have anything 
you know, if you don't understand, if you get to the point to where the only thing that's going to get you out of this is violence and you have nothing in the toolbox, then you're in serious trouble at that point, you know? Um, so, so yeah. So, so, you know, for me, I think the more pressing thing for me is, uh, let, me, let me tell you the embarrassing times, you know, where I used violence when it wasn't um, warranted and, you know, some of the, some of the, some of the results. Well, I'll give you two, two examples. One where I, I did something that, that to this day, it was the last time, it was the last time I was 27, 28 years old. I was coming back from South America. I was in San Diego, California. Um, we had been in a combat zone the whole time. So I get back to San Diego thinking, oh, everything's fine. So I'm in this part of San Diego where we were merging traffic um, and literally just inching. You know, it's just everybody's inching. Uh, I had two of my buddies uh, in the back. One of them uh, or, or one of them noticed that the guy behind me was acting like I had cut him off, you know, like in this inching traffic, like somehow I had cut him off. And he noticed that the guy was really agitated. He could see that the guy was really agitated. So, you know, and again, we're, we're coming back from this combat zone. And I, you know, of course, I start egging this guy on. You know, I look at him, I can make his eyes in, in the rearview mirror. And, you know, we're, we're making, you know, faces at him and everything, just kind of, you know, smiling, laughing. And then I blew kisses. I went, you know, like that to him. That just set him off, you know. So for the next 10 minutes, he manipulated his vehicle to get in front of me. Um, you know, it took that long for, for him to get around. We were just, you know, we were kind of ignoring it. Well, he gets in front of me, stops the car and gets out and it gets out. And I'm like, oh, this is, you know, this is 27 year old me. Oh, this is great. You know, so I get out right away and I start walking towards him. Now I'm in a funnel. Basically, there are cars on either side of me. I'm past my door. When I hear from the back, my friend yell gun. Right then and there, I, I was like, holy crap, I'm in a funnel. I'm in the fatal funnel. I go, the, my only chance is, is to charge this guy. So I start to charge, and then I realize it's not a gun. It was, I don't know if you guys have these uh, in, in Ireland, but in the late 90s, the, one of the big things was uh, a, a, a um, steering wheel lock. Oh, yeah, it's like yeah. a long club yeah. type thing. Mm -hmm. And it locked your stand. Well, that's what he had. He had to have that in his hand. To me, that was like, after seeing it was a gun, this is no big deal. And he was kind of like this with it. So I charge him. I come up. He tries to hit me. It's perfect. It looked just like out of the moon. You know, slam his wrist. I got his neck. I take him. Slam him on the back of the car. I'm just about to hit him. And that's when I see her. He had a little girl. She was about probably four years old. She's literally pressed up. This idiot had his kid in his car when he's doing this. She's pressed up against the back windshield, crying, saying, please don't hurt daddy. You know, and uh, to me, I couldn't believe it. I just, I just, I grabbed the steering wheel thing from him, you know, let him go, go get, you know, get in the car. He, you know, he told me he's an idiot for what he was doing. And then I went back and then it was funny. It was after that time that I realized, okay, a couple things. One. I made that situation happen. I easily could have, when I saw the guy was agitated, go, hey, man, sorry. I could have de-escalated it right away, but I didn't. Um, then I made the stupid assumption that because I was in San Diego and I'd just been in South America, that everything's great. I run out. Had that been a gun, probably would have been shot. Good chance I would have been shot as I, as I came down because it was about 15 feet to get to the guy. and. Again, over what? Nothing. And then on top of that, you know, 
slamming a, 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 a little kid's dad on the back of the car and just seeing a look of terror in a little girl's eyes over a stupid incident that had nothing to do, you know, that, that just changed the way I looked at things. And it really, it really altered, you know, how I looked at the tool. So then fast forward about seven years later, I'm going to pick up my oldest son. Uh, it was at that time, he was my only child. And I was picking up his mom's house. His mom and I were divorced and I picked him up and we were planning a great day. We were in San Diego, same, same thing, San Diego again. Um, it, where, where my son lived, his house, there was like a hill. I came down cars coming down. This guy somehow thinks, you know, like again, that I'm uh, nobody else is around that somehow I, I almost cut him off coming down because he's barreling down the hill. So I go down and sure enough, there's a stoplight. He's at the stoplight and I just got a tattoo. It was just a, one of my first tattoos that I got. And this guy, he sees my little, my son and he's just yelling at me through, through the whole thing. He's, oh, you think you're so tough with the tattoo? He said a lot of expletives and blah, blah, blah. And he sees this little kid, you know, just sitting there. He's this little kid just holding a magazine, you know, and he's, he's looking at the magazine. He looks at me, he looks at this guy and I, I was just really calm and I was, Hey, sir, sorry. You know, I didn't mean to, you know, cut you off. Wasn't trying. And he just kept going, kept going. I just gave him nothing. And he flies off when the, when the, um, the, uh, light turns green. My son looks at me and he goes, dad, why did you let him talk to you that way? He goes, you could have taken him. You could have got out there. He was nothing. And I said, well, yeah, I said, but you know, I don't know. What if he had a gun? I said, or what if I did? What if I didn't? I really hurt him. And, and, and then, you know, then I end up going to jail. And then, you know, we don't get to have a great day. You know, we're going to go see your uncle and everything. And so I went through the whole scenario with him. And he just looks at me and he goes, but dad, you're this guy. And he holds up the magazine. It was Black Belt Magazine. And it was me on the cover. And, you know, having my pose, I was self-defense instructor of the year and everything. And he just couldn't, you know, put the two together. And so I was going to do a seminar. I was dropping him off with his uncle. And then we were all going to get here later. And so I opened the seminar up with that story. And to me, it was like I had choice. I had choice at that point, and as galling as it was to have this guy yelling at my kid and, and doing all that, it wasn't worth the risk. And you know, it was that evolution that I had on on when and where to use it. So, again, you know, having having this information is like having you know a nuclear bomb, basically. You know, and and when would you ever use? that i mean you know a, a, a stick of dynamite can open up your car door but it's probably not the best way to do it you know and so violence is the same type of the tool it's it when you need it there's nothing else that'll work but the threshold for needing it is really really high and you have to be okay with that because you can let your ego get out of control and then you can be in some situations that you really don't want to be in mm. brilliant man yeah and in both those scenarios you're you you hold back because you're trying to protect the child ultimately isn't it you're trying to protect the four-year-old girl yeah. in this in this father's car then you're trying to protect your seven-year-old son in your car yeah. so i mean your the children or the kids have a have had a huge influence on your life and and uh yeah how how did having kids or having children change you as a as a man coming from that background of almost extreme combat to then having to develop a level of empathy and love and compassion for for the children in your life yeah you're not living for yourself anymore 
you know, like, uh, I, I traveled the world four different times. You know, I did it once with the military. I did it three times as a contractor and I'd be gone for months at a time, literally throwing myself in, um, challenging situations. Let's put it that way. Um, and I loved it and I loved the training and I loved being with the guys and I, you know, everything was fine. I, I knew I didn't have a risk. Now, even with my oldest son, his mom remarried, uh, his stepdad, if things were different, he and he and, uh, his, and we are good friends, but we'd be great friends. I, I, I lucked out. This guy was just fantastic. He, uh, he had a daughter, but he'd never had a son and he just, you know, he was great. So I knew inherently I knew my son was fine. You know, worst case scenario, something happens to me. I'm fine. Um, it wasn't until I met my wife, my current wife, you know, 17 years ago. And then we had three children. We've had, uh, I have a 12 year old son and I have twin nine year old daughters. And that's when I started, you know, just choosing things differently. Like, uh, you know, like training, training my guy, my guys, myself and my other instructors, you know, we had a lot of opportunities to do work over in the sandbox and other challenging places. And not only did I not want to put myself in that situation, I didn't want to put my guys in that situation, you know, because a lot of them have families. Um, so we made different choices on where we would train. We would still train people, but we would make them meet us say, you know, back then we'd have them meet in London. A lot of times we train, we train out of London or we train in Paris, uh, you know, it, rather than going to the actual zone itself and, and do some training. So I, that was a choice I made, um, to do that. And, um, and I was fine with that because I had already done all the other stuff. I'd already been in those situations, you know, and, and I realized that, uh, as romantic as it is sounds to a lot of people, it really isn't. It's, it's just, uh, it's, if you don't have to do it, um, why put yourself in that situation? And I think that's kind of the idea that I do with a lot of people is I try to talk to civilians all the time about avoidable situations. You know, when people get into antisocial aggression, which is what most of us think we have to respond to, you know, somebody insults you, somebody, somebody says something to you, or somebody's being obnoxious, and you think you have to respond. And I constantly, uh, you know, bring up scenarios with people show them video of what seems to be a very justified situation. One guy's being a real jerk. Other guy goes to confront the jerk, not necessarily fight with him, but confront him, get into a shoving match. One guy falls over, brains his head, and dies. Now you have a situation where you have somebody's lost their dad, you know, because in, in both of in all the situations I show, it's usually a family member, a family. So they've lost a dad. The other one, the other family's lost a dad to manslaughter. Who's going? So one's going to prison, one's going in the ground. And when you look at it, you sit there and go, over what? You know, they were arguing over the fact that, you know, uh, somebody made a rude comment or, um, somebody behaved aggressively in some way or, or or something like that, and you confronted them when you easily could have ignored the situation or handled it in a much more um, de-escalation type of a situation, you know, where you didn't have to respond in kind. And what I try to tell people, one of the biggest things I have, like in, in my book that that really gets people is the three-day rule. And the three-day rule that I've been counseling people all, all the times is, and you have to think about all this stuff prior to you getting involved in the heated exchanges. But you, you have to ask yourself, the event that you're about to use violence in, that you're going to respond with violence, three days from now, if you find yourself dead, 
you know, and now your family has to deal with, with you being dead, or you find yourself sitting in a jail cell, are you going to tell yourself you were devoid of choice? You had no other options, you know, in this situation. Is it going to matter to you in three days, whatever this event is? That has changed the way a lot of people have looked at their lives. It's caused them to pause in a very positive way and realize that it's not worth it, the threshold. Because every time you put your hands on somebody or somebody puts their hands on you, you are flipping a coin. You have no idea. I, I show videos all the time of two, like, 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 say a pub brawl or something where it's just epic. And it's just these guys going, you know, sometimes multiple minutes, just literally bloodied, beating themselves up, but they both walk away. And then I'll show another pub incident where two guys are into it. One hit, the guy hits the ground, cracks his skull open. He's dead. You know, it's just that flip of the coin. We don't know. And so the threshold always has to be that you are devoid of choice. If, if it's a very simple thing, if you have to ask yourself, is now the time to use violence, then it's not the time because when it is the time you will have no hesitation as long as you have clear, de clear definitions. And then that's what I try to provide people through my talks, through my books, through my trainings, all of that is, is really, that's my main message. Now that doesn't mean that you get lecture from me all the time. No, if you come to me for training, 95% is you working on the mat learning the vulnerable areas of the human body and how to wreck those in case you need to, to save your own life. Um, you know, because that is, that is the most important thing. This is the, I see violence as your last resort tool. Everything else has failed and now you're facing imminent grievous bodily harm and you have to save your own life. And, and so uh, it, it's a very healthy way to look at, at the situation. And um and it causes mostly positive change in people. Mm -hmm. So, with all of the of the good work you do in terms of um, helping others defend themselves, how have you managed to help your your kids develop these these same capabilities or the or the um, the self defense? Have you also got them involved in martial arts, or what? What's what's your process them with them? The teaching what I teach is something that uh, my oldest son didn't get it till he was 17 and a half. Um, he was a very good athlete. Um, he, uh, he did do some combat sports, some wrestling, stuff like that. Um, but he was more into uh, American baseball and football. Um, that, that was his sports. Um, my younger kids are all doing jujitsu. Uh, my son is also doing boxing and Muay Thai. He loves, he loves that. Uh, my girls are, uh, one of my girls is doing competition karate because she, she saw Cobra Kai and she just wanted to do karate also, but I had them all do jujitsu as a basis because I want, I wanted all of them to be comfortable getting grabbed. And, uh, we were lucky in, in Vegas, we have a lot of great instructors and in particular, the school that I have them at is excellent at teaching kids. And especially my girls, I wanted my girls to feel really comfortable with somebody putting hands on them. They wouldn't freeze and they wouldn't freak out. So I find that as a very good uh, basis. I have no illusions that my nine-year-old girls can physically protect themselves from a predator and from an adult. That is my job. You know, that's my, my, my wife's job. That is, that is up to us to protect our kids at that age. You know, you can't, so I have, I'm, I'm one of those people, like people, I think they send their kids thinking their kids are going to be able to fight off predators. And no, the benefit is from an anti-bullying type of situation and also 
getting used to, you're building a foundation. And so what I'm doing with my kids is I'm building this foundation that when it's time for them to learn what I teach, I, you know, I have them prepared. They're physically prepared for it. I know they're able to handle it and the transition will be really easy for them to have these life skill sets on, on, you know, the tool of violence. Um, but there's so many positive benefits to martial arts training. I was a martial, I had three different black belts prior to me learning the system, you know, that, that I learned in the military, um, that has become, you know, uh, what, what I teach now. And, uh, to me, the martial arts, you know, how effective was it as far as actual violence? It varied. Some of my stuff was pretty good. Uh, some of it was more, you know, for competition type things that wouldn't, wouldn't have really, really helped me. Um, but the discipline that I learned, the camaraderie that I got, uh, the positive instructors that I had that were big influences in my life, that was great. I grew up on uh, Navy bases. And so a lot of our instructors were young Marines who would teach us, you know, martial arts, they do our baseball, soccer, all that other stuff. They're our coaches. So I was really fortunate that I had, you know, young warriors basically teaching me and giving us this great, you know, uh, these great avatars to follow and, and, and go. So, you know, I'm a little unique because only 3% of uh, the country has any affiliation with the military. And, and so I, I realized that my upbringing was, was a little different than everybody else's. And then also growing up in Boston with an Irish, you know, um, with an Irish family that is very big on combat sports that I realized as I went around, you know, the rest of the country, not everybody grew up that way. And uh, it, it was it was pretty funny. But, um, you know, for me, I wanted to give my kids that. So I try to find instructors that are not only technically competent, but also can instill all those things in the kids. And, um, and so that's my goal with them. My sons, I don't want them to navigate high school, um, the high school years with the tool of violence. There's a maturity thing with boys. I rarely train men under, you know, under the age of 18. Um, usually it's outside of the U S usually it's a family, say in South America or Eastern Europe or something where there's a true threat to the family. And then those, those kids grow up much faster and they understand the, the, the ramifications of that, um, here in the U S and a lot of times in Western Europe, young men, you know, they don't, I, I wouldn't want them to navigate, um, those years because boys they, they tend to do things to you they tend to try things out on each other and a lot of what i teach can you know just do irreparable harm i mean if you just look on youtube any of the stupid things that you know teenagers do to each other now it's different with women i will train um as long as the parents are okay with it i'll train girls as young as 11 um again i don't feel they're gonna be able to fight off a sexual predator but they need to start learning early on that um for for women it's very different Boys, men have, and I, and I understand with all the gender challenges and everything now, you know, people are, are, are doing what it is, but, but culturally, men communicate with violence at time. We will have, uh, you know, here in the U.S., we call it locker room, locker room time, where you push each other around, you'll do things, and it's more of a social dominance thing. It's not actual violence, but we have this confusion with violence that sometimes we have to navigate, okay, is this a, is this an alpha social uh dominance thing or is this real violence women as soon as a man it's a men you know men putting hands on it you know if they put hands on women it's violence you know they they experience the real thing and um so i you know i'm very comfortable my girls will probably learn it much earlier 
I also have uh, access to some great trainers. And my my girls, uh, I would imagine by 15, will be very competent with tools. They'll be very competent with firearms. They'll be very competent with uh, with knives. Not in a paranoid way or anything like that. It's just a reality that, that um, women are always going to be facing a bigger, faster, stronger male. And there are times where here in the U.S., for, for the most part, um, if a woman uses a tool against a predator, uh, it's it's more than justified. And so I want them to understand the parameters of that so they navigate life. Uh, you know, it, it, there's this balance. You don't want to you don't want kids to live in fear, but you also don't want them to think that that everything is just great and you can just take unnecessary risks. Mm -hmm. Have your uh, twin girls softened you as a man? Yes, very much so. Um, having daughters is probably the greatest gift ever for somebody like me. Um, you know, I, I have a sister, um, but she's learning disabled. And so I never really had, you know, Jill, my, my sister, Jill just wasn't able to have, I wasn't able to have that sister, you know, brother relationship really with her. Um, and to have that with my daughters is just amazing. They're just, they're completely different. They look at things completely differently. Um, they're very, they're. Um, you know, because I, I had two boys prior to that and uh, the girls just mature so much faster and they're far more verbal, you know, um, and their insights. It's its just funny. You know, boys take a lot longer to mature a little bit. Um, and I've just I've, I've learned a lot, too. I've learned that I don't have to be this aggressive guy all the time. And not that I was, but but, you know, they don't fall for any of that. I'm dad, you know, and they just laugh. Um, once in a while they'll see me in training and they, you know, they're like, who's this guy, you know? And, uh, and they'll see how people respond to me sometimes when we're out, um, you know, they'll come up and talk to me and stuff like that. And they're like, you know, cause to them, I'm just dad. And in fact, my daughters weren't sure that I actually worked. Um, my, my wife is, uh, an assistant, the assistant sheriff here in Las Vegas and very high position. And so they see mom doing all this professional stuff all the time. Well, dad, usually before they go to school, I'm usually in t-shirts and stuff like that. And I, you know, I, I own my own schedule. And so my, my daughters were concerned that I needed a job. And they told me, well, dad, you're really good at cooking steaks and uh, making coffee. So maybe that's what you should do. And I'm like, oh, that's great, girls. Thanks so much. You know? Um, but yeah, it, it, it is. And, 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 uh, Listen, it's not for everybody. Like that's the other thing too. Like, like I'm not one of those parents that oh, everybody has to have children. It's a huge commitment. It was a huge change in my lifestyle. Uh, by saying yes to having kids, I had to say no to a lot of things that I think people in my world or people that wanted to be in my world would be crazy. You know, they go, "Oh my God, you can't." You know, I don't run off to the train with special ops units anymore as much as I used to. I don't do some of the amazing opportunities that I have around the world that I used to literally, people would call me up and say, Hey, can you be in New York on Monday? Yep. Boom. Be right there. Hey, we got a real cool opportunity in Frankfurt. Can you do that? Absolutely. But I used to be that guy that, that could respond like that. And now it's just, it's different. I schedule things differently and I don't feel like I'm missing out at all because I had years of doing that. Um, you know, uh, but yeah, from, from a lifestyle standpoint for me, um, I'm probably one of the most unlikely people to have four kids. I have four kids now, which is crazy. If you talk to me in my twenties, uh, in my high school yearbook, it, it said, you know, everybody says, you know, what their goals are, what they want. Mine was to become a mercenary and own a Greek Isle. 
Um, I couldn't believe that they let me put that in there. But I mean, that was me from beginning, like all through college, I was prepping to be in special operations. I just, I had no, you know, having relationships, I would go out with girls and stuff like that, but had no interest in building a family or doing anything like that. And, uh, it really wasn't until I was in my early thirties that, uh, that, you know, I, I, I had my first break and I looked at that and I'm very, and honestly, I would say to young men, if you're going to go in the military, if you're going to do something along those lines, even if you can do law enforcement for a while, don't get married right away. You know, um, you do the job much more selflessly when you don't have attachments like that. And I don't mean it's bad. It's just you think differently. You will hesitate in situations that before you never would have hesitated in. So to actually be your best at that job, I would I would not want to have a family. Like I would not looking back on some of the things I participated over the years and the events that I did. Thank God I didn't have to worry about anybody. You know, I would tell my dad, I would tell my dad, Hey dad, you know, my mom only thought I was in two places in the United States all the time. She thought I was either in Coronado, California, or I was in Virginia beach. You know, she, she just thought that's where I traveled between. She had no idea where the hell I was. I was gone. My father always knew, you know, my dad's former military. And I would just tell, Hey dad, if anything happens, just kind of where we're at, blah, blah, blah. Um, but you know, I can't imagine living that lifestyle there. And, and I come from the Naval Special Warfare community. I, I was uh, um, I was trained to be a SEAL. I blew my ears uh, in a really bad diving accident. And I stayed in the community as a special operations intelligence officer. Um, and I stayed in the SEAL community doing that, not as a SEAL, but as an intelligence officer. And so I saw these guys, these amazing guys. And, and, and uh, you know, the divorce rate in special operations communities through the roof and in the seals in particular it was massive it was like i think when i was in it was like 70 something percent of the guys got divorced because it's just no lifestyle for a family you know and uh, all, all sorts of issues and so i saw all of that as a young guy and i was like no nah, i don't you know I, I was i just avoided it so it wasn't until i was out of the military that i that i even entertained it at that point and um i tell my sons the same thing you know just you know understand you're, you're if you decide to have a family that has to be, you know, your priority and you have to adjust accordingly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can't afford to hold back on either of those areas. No. Yeah. yeah. No, it, I, I see the results when people do. I, mm. I saw guys in the community that were amazing operators, fantastic. And their family life was just a shambles. You know, they didn't know their kids. They didn't, you know, you can't do both. And some guys recover. I've seen some guys recover. Um, you know, if, if any of your people watch anybody like Jocko Willing, um, he talks about that. I thought it was really cool when I, when I first saw some of these things, he admits fully when he was in the job, he was immersed. That was it. That was his whole focus. And his wife knew that she's a strong woman and, and she was able to do it. And I really respect the fact that he was honest about that. And now of course he's, you know, he, he can embrace all that, you know, his life is very different. Um, but yeah, you have to in order to, especially when you're operating at the levels those guys were operating at, you, you can't afford distractions like that. Mm -hmm. um, it, it really, it's really, it makes it hard to do the job. Is there uh, one experience or uh, one moment even that has been a highlight for you, as you sit here talking to me today, that you, that, that sort of stuck with you the most? Professionally, one of the coolest things that ever happened to me was I was in Prague at an event in 2002. And there were two really cool things. The first was I was doing a presentation and I was doing it on hand-to-hand -hand combat to a very elite group of people, um, business professionals, politicians, 
celebrities. It was just this, this mastermind group that came together of a couple hundred people. And we were in Prague right after, you know, a couple years after, uh, you know, people had got their land back and stuff like that. And it was there. It was a really interesting time to be in Czech Republic. Um, so the first thing was I did my event, you know, teaching hand-to-hand combat. And I saw somebody who I kind of recognized in the crowd. And I knew from the speakers, he, I was one of the speakers. And I, I knew he was going to be there. But I wasn't sure it was him. And he comes up to me after. And he said, that is the finest presentation I've ever seen on hand-to-hand combat. And he goes, on the subject in, in general. And he was the former head of MI6. So he was, you know, M. It was like, the you know, it's my James Bond moment, basically. And he was great. And he made some calls. And, and you know, I never thought I'd get, you know, any business out of this. And I ended up working with the UK a lot after that. Um, so that was seminal. But the other thing that was crazy was it's 2002. And I'm at this event. I'm on a uh, I'm on a bus. We're going to a castle. I'm sitting next to a U.S. astronaut who's there. Me, former former DIA, former intelligence, special operations intelligence, focusing a lot on Soviet special forces at the time because we were watching. You know, I was watching everything about uh, Afghanistan when they were there. I'm sitting next to another head of the GRU. Another KGB, uh, former KGB guy that literally, had we all been together 10 years earlier, somebody was going to be taken to jail or somebody was going to be shot. Like none of us could be together. And we were all saying that when we were sitting there and we were having great conversations and we're going on and we're going, this couldn't have happened. You know, this this event, we, we could not be talking to each other as freely as we are and enjoying things. And so it was just surreal. So I've had many, many cool things in my life that I've been part of, and I've met incredible people. It's on the most unlikely subject. When I decided to do this, I was I got out of the military. Um, it was in the early '90s, and I told myself I'm going to take six months off, and then I was going to Wall Street. I have an international business degree. Uh, my friends were already there, and they're going, oh, "You finally done with the military? You know, we're going to get you in. They were going to grease me in. I was going to get in one of the houses." Um, but I want to take six months off. Now I learned uh, the basics. I, be, I had become a military instructor in what we, what I now do. Um, and the, the instructor who was not in the military, he was a former military guy, but he was, he was running the company. He goes, Hey, I know you're taking six months off. He said, would you mind helping me out? He goes, it, the word's getting around that I'm training all these spec ops units. He said, I'm getting a lot of inquiries from, from corporate people, from, from corporate security. Cause a lot of the guys would leave the teams or they'd leave special forces and they'd go to these, these security units uh, for corporate, you know, fortune one hundreds. And they say, Hey, you should get everybody trained by these guys, you know? And so I had decided, okay, yeah, that's kind of fun. So I started helping them out and six months turned into 12 years. (laughs) So, and it was crazy. And the people that I met, I never would have had access to those people, you know, like, like if I had done traditional careers, I mean, I mean, the CEOs, the celebrities, the, um, the politicians that I got access to far more than in my intelligence career, which I had some pretty incredible, you know, access there too. Um, so it was just crazy. It made no sense whatsoever, um, to do this. My mother was so embarrassed, you know, she was like, what, what do I tell people you do? You know, and, um, 
But since then, you know, I not only was I able to build the business that I'm able to build today, but I've become an author. I got two New York Times bestsellers on the subject. Uh, I was able to talk at Google, do a TED Talk, you know, and this isn't a subject that back when I learned, I mean, it was, you know, really suppressed, you know, uh, martial arts, combat sports, you know, military training. Um, to think that it would have a more broader appeal or people would listen to this type of subject. It, it was, it was really kind of unthinkable back then. Yeah. So yeah. all I can tell people is, listen, if you just go with your gut, it felt right to me. It made no sense financially. <laughs> it made no sense at the beginning financially. Um, but I just knew there was some reason I had to keep doing this. I just had such a passion for it. And, um, you have to be careful with passions because, you know, they don't, don't be stupid about it. I just kept having unique opportunities that opened up more doors to me. And even though it made no sense at the times, because you might got to remember in the nineties and early two thousands, it was all about, you know, wall street or, you know, Silicon Valley and all of that stuff. And, and I missed all those opportunities I could have, even though I have all friends in those areas. Um, I did turn down a lot of quick money that that I that I could have been part of. Um that said, a lot of those guys blew up, you know, that that you know, some some of them did very well, but a lot of them <laughs> blew up and lost everything. So uh, you know, it's been interesting. Yeah, um yeah, yeah. So if I can give anybody advice that way, it's just it's it's if something is internally telling you to keep going, just just do it. It's yeah. probably you're gonna keep getting drawn to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you, you had the skills to back up the passion. That's, that's, that's a, that's, well, that's the other thing too. Yeah. I I loved what I do. And, and for me, what's interesting is being dropped. I can drop the the, the methodologies that we use. I can drop myself in one part of the world. I can drop one of my instructors in in one of the, uh, in part of the world. We can each have 40 to 60 brand new people. And at the end of the training, we could integrate those people and they'd all be able to train with each other. They'd all be fine from zero to nine. We have no idea who's going to show up or what they're going to do, but we can get everybody with this, you know, through the skill sets to where they understand the tool and they understand how to operate the tool. And they also understand how to live a life that minimizes the chance of violence coming in their life. And to me, that's exciting is that when you can do something like that, because I, I look at the main thing that I do, especially my civilian clients, my goal really isn't to, um, turn them into, you know, uh, because most people are not going to be like me. Most people are not going to train their whole life in a combat sport or martial art. That's a very small, for every thousand people that I train, I have one person that ends up taking it to instructor, you know, um, it, the commitment's just, just not there, you know, and, and people have other things to do in their life. But I look at my training for most of these people, the same way you would look at taking a CPR course, you know, um, no doctor is going to make fun of a CPR course. And nobody that's taking a CPR course is going to pretend they're a doctor, you know? And so it's the same thing. It's just like, these are life skills that you can learn and apply, uh, you know, in worst case scenario to save your own life. And um, to, to me, that's a much more rewarding thing than when I was training. And, and don't get me wrong. I love training military operators and law enforcement operators. And I, and I do do that, but I expect them to do well. They're in a job where they volunteered for that. And most of the time, most of the time, they are going to be with another group, a group of like-minded individuals, armed, ready to go. And so, you know, they're there. I expect them to do well. My civilians, when violence has entered their life, they're usually living great lives. They're great people. And, and, and it shouldn't have happened. And 
the fact that they were able to use my information to either have to physically protect themselves or make better decisions so they never got in the situation is, is really, really rewarding. And, and to me, a long time ago, I found that I really enjoyed that aspect of things, uh, much more so than just the military straight operative stuff. Has there been people or even one person that's, that's reached out to you and has used your tools in oh, yeah. such an extreme, such an ex extreme yeah. uh, scenario? So the one, the, there are a couple again, I mean, a couple of, I, I have a book called When Violence is the Answer. Um, and, and some of those stories are in, are in that book. Yeah. Um, I just referenced that for, for people. Uh, but one of the ones that always sticks out with me is uh, in the, in the mid nineties, I had a doctor that went through training with us and he was a neurosurgeon and he lived in, he lived in Ohio and he had an incident happen that he gets called in the middle of the night. An eight-year-old boy has a brain bleed and it's his head is swelling, you know, fast. They need him to come in and perform the operation. They're keeping the kids stable. He jumps in his car. He had a Mercedes, very nice car. And he, and he goes into the city, uh, this, this inner city hospital um, that's in Cincinnati. He parks in the parking lot. And as he gets out, two guys jump him because it's in a, it was in a bad part of town. And they, they tracked him. They, they jumped him. Uh, he was able the first guy had a knife and he was able to come crashing down on his ulnar nerve. He, the guy dropped the knife. He needed him to the uh, groin, knocked him to the ground. And the other guy, you know, ran off. Um, that come, comes in there. Security comes in. They, they, you know, get the guy, you know, right away, you know, and the doctor goes in and performs surgery. And the first thing he does is he gets out of surgery and he literally writes us a letter and, and says, this is what happened. He said, prior to me training with you guys, he goes, honestly, I wouldn't have known what to do. He said, I was kicking myself, you know, after the fact, because I took an unnecessary risk. I could have just pulled to the front of the hotel as somebody else or a hospital and let somebody else take my car. Um, and, and he said, but that said, I was able to use the skills that I learned with you to save my life. But not only that, by saving my life, I was able to save that young man's life on it. And you know, I get the calls from the guys that are in the sandbox or my cop buddies that, that have had to use stuff. And that's great. It's all that to get that was just amazing. The other one, and this one's in the book uh, that I always talk about is I did a, um, I, 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 there are a lot of corporate groups that invite me to speak. And one was a group called uh, young presidents organization. It's a group of entrepreneurs, young CEOs. And we went on a cruise. Uh, it was a Baltic cruise. And uh, on there, they had families. And so they asked me to do this one kind of unique class where it was a lot of the guys had daughters that were going off to college. And they wanted to do a dad's and daughter's um, self-protection class. And what was interesting was the reason we're doing that is because I like women to work against male male body types and so what we decided to do was okay yeah you'll come with your daughter but your daughters the daughters are going to work with all the other dads they're not going to work with their dad they're going to work with all these unfamiliar body types but everybody feels okay because you know it's, it's within the group and it was a really popular class this one girl came with a guy that i kind of knew from the organization and if you've ever seen the movie legally blonde um that was her you know i mean she is just you know a smart kid but she's just, oh my god you know total la girl and I could tell she she did everything. You know, she wasn't being a jerk and, and not participating, but I could tell she wanted to be up sunning and 
you know, having fun. She did not want to be down below doing self-defense with all these old guys, you know? Um, so I don't think anything of it. Two years later, I'm in New York doing a seminar and I wasn't really paying attention. I'd, I'd come back from, uh, uh, I think I was in Europe when I came to New York to do the class. And I, I, I just, usually my staff's pretty good. Usually I kind of look at who's, who's in, I didn't see it, but I see her come in and she's got her three sisters behind her and they're all taking class. And she goes, hi, I don't know if you remember me, you know, blah, blah, blah. I go, Hey, how's your dad? You know, I haven't seen you in a long time. She goes, Oh, she goes, you didn't hear what happened. And I said, no, what, what, what happened? So she goes off to school. She has a dorm room on the, on the bottom floor of her, uh, of of their uh, living place, you know, at the dormitory, she's on the bottom floor, and she has a roommate. And the roommate, like three nights a week, would go stay with her boyfriend. And they were really lax about leaving their windows unlocked and stuff like that. Sure enough, one night she wakes up, and this guy's on top of her. Yeah, two hundred thirty pound guy on top of her. She's in there. She has one of those beds that uh, like a lot of college kids have where the bed is above and they have the desk below. So it's kind of like a higher up bed, almost like a bunk bed type situation. So she's up there. And she said, the first thing that I realized, she goes, it was like you were in my ear saying, oh, he's not close enough. Like she immediately realized her situation and she immediately realized, okay, I have to relax. I cannot, I, I can't take action right now because he's too far away. I need him closer. You know, because, you know, I always tell people, I go, you usually have that one chance to get an injury on somebody that can save your life, you know? Um, and she did. And, and, and so this guy did, and especially in, in the rape position, they usually have to adjust themselves and they end up bringing, he did, he brought, he brought his head closer to her because he didn't fear her. He thought, you know, he's used to women just freezing and allowing this to happen. And when he came in, that's when she took action. She grabbed around and just latched herself around his neck and then took her thumb. And just went right into his eye right away, like, like you know the way we had taught everything. Um, he had a very violent reaction. I mean, he violently pulled away, but because she was holding on to him, like we teach people, uh, you know, she's with him the whole time. As they fall off of the bed, he um, he he falls. Her hand comes off of the eye, and then her ulna. She didn't mean to do this, but her ulna, her forearm, ends up like right below his throat. When they hit the ground, she's on top of him. Her forearm, with all the body weight slamming in, crushes this guy's throat. She could feel like, you know, the the, the crushing of that. Um, she sees right away this guy releases and he's he, he's out. He's able. He lets go of her and he's you know trying to breathe basically, but he's on the floor immobilized. She runs down the hall screaming. And then, you know, security comes in. By the time security got, got in there and everything, the guy had asphyxiated and died. Um, she said, she said, I was so pissed at myself. She said, I remember you telling us about, you know, just social awareness. And they find out this guy had been tracking her for three weeks, got her patterns, understood when the, when the guy was going, saw that they leave there. He had tried their window a couple of times because they, when they found his place, they found all of his notes and everything. And he had been a, uh, he'd been a predator they'd been looking for. He, he terrorized a couple of different schools, um, and, and got away with, you know, a couple of different sexual assaults. Um, that was probably one of the most extreme civilian situations, uh, I've ever had. Um, but it was amazing. She was like, she was fine. She didn't really need counseling or anything like that. She was very lucid. 
on, on the situation and she was determined to get her sisters into training. Um, and you know, that's, that's when they were there, but it's incidents like that. And then I'll give you one more. This is probably one that, that, you know, is the best. This is, this is my best scenario that I can get from anybody. Um, I was training a guy. He's from Texas. He comes, he's from an oil family, big guy, looked like a, a football player, like a, like an American football player, just, just really, really big dude. Um, and you know, he's, the typical good old boy. You could tell he'd like to go to the, you know, the cowboy bars and he definitely, you know, like to throw punches and, and do things. And the second day of training, he's there in the morning and he said, Hey, Tim, can I talk to you for a second? And I said, yeah, man. He goes, I just want to thank you. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, I called my wife last night after the first day of training. I told her, honey, you don't have to worry about me anymore. He said, I learned today how lucky I've been that I by accident, by willingly getting involved in fights, didn't inadvertently seriously injure somebody and end up in jail and vice versa, that I didn't run into somebody that really knew violence and could have, you know, taken me out. And, you know, his whole demeanor on that subject changed and his behavior changed. And to me, if I can have that effect on somebody, you know, to where they change their behavior to minimize the chance and, and, and look at it. To me, that's the greatest gift I can give anybody, you know, because I see the results of violence. And even if you're successful, you know, even if you're successful, to, you know, taking care of yourself, it's still it's terrible. It's just it's just not it's not anything you want to experience if you don't have to. Mm -hmm. Well, man, taken back by those stories, saving lives, incredible work. And thank you for the the work you do. And uh, where where can I get my daughter to sign up with you? Uh, yeah, that's that. That's that's what I'm thinking in the back of my mind now. Um, she's yeah. actually uh, in karate class at the moment with my with my son. So, um, but yeah. So where where can the good people of this podcast reach out to you? Potentially work with you, join one of your training yeah. programs. A, a great way to start is just if you go to timlarkin.com. Um, just give us your email. We give you a guide right away. It has 11 different modules in the guide, and it really, if you if you if anything resonated during this this interview. And you want more, uh, you know, we really go in depth with that. It's completely free. There's nothing there. I Listen, I would love people to train with me and do things, but I also want you to be fully informed before you come in. You know, I, I'm not saying I'm a, I, I don't know if I'm the right person to help you, but if you read this material, you'll have a much better understanding and then you can make a choice from there. Um, and yeah, and, and, and if you like the material and you think other people would use it, please, you know, give them my website to check it out. Brilliant, man. Tim, I've... Thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for. Well, thank your, you for having me, Gavin. I appreciate it. Yeah, your time, your energy, your insights, your inspiration. <clears throat> so, I look forward to uh, listening to your podcast when you launch that too in the near future. I believe. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and also, if people want to check out any of the, I, I do have a YouTube channel, uh, Tim Larkin Self Protection. Easy to find. Uh, lots of different things. I've interviewed a lot of subject matter experts from. Uh, the key, not just me, it's, it's, it's other stuff. And, um, and also just, we go over a lot of the same material that you and I have been talking about. Yeah. Brilliant, man. Thank you. And, uh, until next time, till I see you in Ireland, man. Yeah. 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 I got to yeah. get over to the home country. Nice one, man. Make it happen. Thanks, Tim. All right, brother. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Warrior Podcast. If this episode has added value to your life, 
please share this episode on your social media platforms so that others too can gain the insight, information, and inspiration that they need in order to move forward in their lives. For the time being, stay strong and keep fighting the good fight.